I'm sorry that I missed your party. I wish I had a better excuse, but I can't even lie, you got me. I was busy thinking about boys, boys, boys. I was busy dreaming about boys, boys, boys. I was busy thinking about boys, boys, boys. Let's get ready to rumble. Welcome to Aya versus the Big Boys. Tonight's fight. Boogie Nights. Hello, and welcome, and Happy New Year's Eve. My name is Kevin Cookman, resident big boy and ringleader for the matchup of the century. As you very much know, we are struggling in a global pandemic. Most of us working from home. I should really change that part of the intro. The side effect of that, a lot more free time to catch up on media of all shapes and sizes. We all have movies we know we should have seen by now, but just haven't. Call it the canon, call it the IMDb Top 250, or call them the big boys. The pinnacles of cinema maybe the most explicitly patriarchal artistic medium of all time. It is time for a bro movie beatdown. Without any further ado, in today's episode and every episode, I am joined by the titular prize fighter herself, Aya Lehman. I am a star. I'm a star. I'm a star. I'm a star. I am a big, bright, shining star. Now show that big fat hog. <laughs> Hanging <laughs> on the Zoom. <laughs> What's up, Aya? Kevin! Oh, Woo! man. Oh, baby. Happy New Year! It's about to be 2021. Are you ready for 2021, Ugh. Kevin? Fuck no. What are you talking about? Not prepared. <laughs> I wasn't ready for March. I'm st- <laughs> right now in December. I'm not ready for March. I, I still haven't buckled up. Frankly, <laughs> look. You know what? I'll stay optimistic. Maybe some good things will happen next year. Maybe, maybe, maybe things good. You know? Uh, what? I don't know, <laughs> but I'm sure there will be three good things. Manifesting three good things next year. I'm not even asking for a full hand. I'm just no. asking for three little piggy wiggy digits. I can't three wait to be here things. on Zoom because we will not get vaccinated. <laughs> yeah, we're like always I, only going to be recording to this on be Zoom. Clear, I will get vaccinated. I am not first in line to get vaccinated. <laughs> the way I phrased that. Open the door to anti-vax. I'm not. I will get vaccinated, <laughs> but we will not be first. We will not be at the top of that list. Okay. We do both have asthma. We both have asthma. We have a pre-existing condition. <laughs> but in the city of Los Angeles, don't you forget, podcasting is an essential service. So technically, technically, we're at the front of the line for a Moderna. A fucking just, just, I'll suck it up. I'll suck up that fucking. Let's go, juice. Pfizer. I'm ready. <laughs> Let's get. I cannot wait to be here in one calendar year, counting the three good things that happened this year in 2021. I'll, I'm booking it in the schedule now. Put it on the books. And next year, we will list the three top best things of 2021. <laughs> And we, I'll, I'll assure you, none of them will be movies by the rate <laughs> we're going. That is guaranteed. <laughs> but, you know, today we're here on good old New Year's Eve. Uh, 
I added this film to our calendar. I was really inspired by our good friends at the Frida Cinema. They programmed this movie on New Year's Eve in like 2017, I want to say. And I found it to be such a novel, interesting choice. Because the film we're talking about today is Paul Thomas Anderson's Boogie Nights. Uh, and really, there's only one scene here that takes place on New Year's Eve. And it's a deeply traumatic scene. And it, you know, signals the coming of the next decade. And is the exact midpoint of the film. Really doesn't circle around it, but for some reason, I found it such, to be such an interesting choice on their part to program, because it really does feel like both the be- a movie about the beginning and a movie very much about the end. Do you know what I mean? Ah, absolutely. We're on the fucking Paul Thomas Anderson marathon, we're baby. We're back on the train. Whew, one at a time. We're getting all these checks off on your big blind watch list. Yeah. Aya, uh, here we are. Boogie okay. Nights might be... The biggest one. Because it was There Will Be Blood, and then right after that is Boogie Nights. We've talked a lot about Paul Thomas Anderson's career on that There Will Be Blood episode, about who he was in sort of like this first phase of his career, and who he was in the second phase of his career. Let's just, you know, fuck it, baby. Let's get right into it. Let's not talk about how we're feeling. Let's, we know how we're feeling. We feel bad. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But you you know what? I want to know, how do you feel about Boogie Nights? One time when I was in high school, I was in a play... I was in a lot of plays. I was in a play, and I remember I was reading lines with my scene partner, who I was deeply in love with, and she asked me for a line to help her figure out where we were, and I gave her a line, and she said, that doesn't inspire me to say anything. And that's kind of how I felt about Boogie Nights. Go on. (laughs) What the You have never done an intro like this before. (laughs) What the fuck? I was Is this a fucking around. New York Times piece? I, yes. <laughs> I was driving around the great city of Pasadena, California, thinking on Boogie Nights, reflecting on the film I had seen in preparation for our recording this afternoon, and I was like, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to say. And that, I, I always think that whenever I, I think it a lot before we start the podcast, and I'm sure I will inevitably have a lot to say because I have a lot to say about a lot of things. But for some reason, that really jumped out at me. Let, let me let me save you here a bit. Because for the longest time, I pretty much agreed. Yeah. I thought this was really like weaker Paul Thomas Anderson. And I think what, what kind of sets us apart from a lot of people who look at him pretty holistically is uh, like, I forget, what was the first Paul Thomas Anderson movie you saw? Uh, Inherent Vice. Yeah. Okay. So we both, mine was, was There Will Be Blood. And so we're both coming in at his second phase his complete maturation like in many ways i find boogie nights to be really fun really charming and has a lot of really interesting uh you know blood and coursing through its body it still kind of feels like the formal emotional character-based test run for everything he would do when he grew up the, the like the the concept of like making an epic film i feel like oh, his films the ones that i've seen thus far are like are epics in like the greek sense and i feel like this film i can see what you mean because i feel like uh there will be blood weirdly they're very connected like i can see how daniel day lewis's character in there will be blood is like a an extension of burt reynolds in boogie nights no, sure. I see it because they're both characters that are like marred by this sense of of transition in mm-hmm. their industries. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I, it takes a very different uh, sort of spirit in, in like the decades between them, because I think in, in Boogie Nights, 
the the wave of VHS coming in and sort of ruining the life of a filmmaker who prides himself on his work. That's a very like young filmmaker thing. Like that's, that's something that we talk about on this podcast. Like we have a very doomer mindset about every like small incremental change in the film industry. Like you can look back at our backlog. We say it. Oh yeah. Uh, And I think when Paul Thomas Anderson enters like his late thirties into his forties, that sort of constant paranoia kind of turns into more a sense of, you know, a novelistic tragedy. You know, it's he, he's not quite looking at transitions in the form of, oh, great, I'll never be able to do what I can do anymore. It's just more like, oh, interesting, I can become a new human being. And I think he puts that into his characters at that point. Yeah. Yeah, I was I was never too big on the on the Boogie Nights train because I, I, I thought it was like, it, like you said, like it, it's fun. You know, like it's it's kind of like your standard rise and fall. It's doing a lot, but it's not quite like Scorsese level of doing a lot where you feel exhausted. Like it's more grounded than that, too. It's taking a lot from everyone, but never really feeling like a roller coaster. And I think with the with this type of like style and structure, you are we, we are so used to the roller coaster approach. I don't know. Did you find that true at all? I see a lot of, because I know that they were friends, and I don't know if they were friends already, but I see a lot of Tarantino's influence here. For sure. Like, yeah. I, like I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if he was, like, writing it with him, you know? Or, like, a lot of, like, a lot of, particularly, like, that last scene where you're just like, this is a Tarantino scene, right? Like, he just borrowed from uh, Mr. Anderson. Well, the, the narrative goes that, by the time uh, PTA was making Boogie Nights, they weren't exactly contemporaries. Tarantino wasn't someone he looked up to either. They were just people that ran in the same circuits. And yeah. enough people in the press brought up Tarantino to Paul Thomas Anderson that this is Paul Thomas Anderson's side of the story. He called up Quentin Tarantino and said, hey, people keep lumping us together. Maybe we should get to know each other. Aww. And they hit it off, became great friends, got Abuse really hard Fiona to Apple. <laughs> It abused Fiona Apple to no end. Uh, not great. Bad. Not great. I'm trying to think. I'm trying to reflect on what you mean when you talk about like how this doesn't feel like a roller coaster. You said. Yeah, I, I think it comes in the form of uh, I think why Tarantino and and PTA were slotted together so often in the '90s is that. You know, if we're talking about PTA in like the 2000s and 2010s, it feels like he's making like these great novels, but in the form of of films. Mm -hmm. But in the 90s, he's really pushing for that. I loved going to video stores. I went to film school. Yeah. You know, let me show you everything I watched. Yeah. That's sort of like the mindset he's going into. A lot of people bring up Scorsese, obviously, when you look at this. I think this has, uh, to a fault, a lot of, like, casino DNA mm-hmm. in it. Like, more, like, goodfellas and shit. Absolutely. Um, but in PTA's mind, apparently, and this is something that I, I still fail to see, uh, his number one inspiration for everything he's ever made is Jonathan Demme. And uh, apparently uh, PTA went to Jonathan Demme after he had seen Boogie Nights and went, oh, did you see how much shit I stole from you? And Jonathan Demme went, no. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's the weird thing about Paul Thomas Anderson. I mean, Jonathan Demme is a whole topic in itself because he is a very difficult director yeah. to, like, identify his concrete style. Yeah, absolutely. He's just a guy that you understand. You know, you get his vibe. And I think that's what, what stops Boogie Nights from being a roller coaster 
and I think why I appreciate it now is that he really takes those moments to understand not just the scenes and techniques of his favorite filmmakers, but the mantras. Yeah, I yeah I think so. I think um, I remember reading about a band and ta- and like someone talking about how all their music their music doesn't sound necessarily like Bruce Springsteen or like the Beatles, but sonically in your mind you're like, well, doesn't it sound just like that one Bowie song? And then you listen to the Bowie song and you're like, no. Sonically they are similar, even if they don't sound exactly the same. But you can hear the way that the creator's mind worked. That clicked for me only just this year. Yeah. And I once I got on that same wavelength with Paul Thomas Anderson, I was like, oh, yeah, Boogie Nights makes me feel like the happiest I've ever been, the saddest I've ever been, the most melancholy I've ever been, and the most horny I've ever been. Like, whenever <laughs> he wants me to feel something, he he's completely got it. nails it because he's like fucking possessored, like tapped right into my fucking uh, my ne- neuron core. I've seen two Demi films. I've seen Stop Making Sense, which is, I mean, like it counts, but it's it's not like a narrative film, so it's a little bit different. But I can see the energy of Stop Making Sense. And I've seen Ricky and the Flash, which I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) How do you compare Ricky and the Flash to any of these films? But I I get it, you know? But I guess, I mean, like, I don't know. I feel like he, especially in his later years, which I have not, I've only seen parts of Rachel getting married. I haven't seen the whole thing. He does really take his time with his characters as opposed to, I mean, God bless Scorsese. I think he takes more time with his characters. Jonathan Demme does. And I can see that in Paul Thomas Anderson's work where like just that, remember that, that lingering shot on Mark's face? Where is it? You mentioned it specifically at like near the end. It's like a yeah. very long take on Mark Wahlberg's face. And I'm, I, I can kind of see the Demi influence there more where it's something that it's something that he would do in terms of investigating his characters more thoroughly. He creates people that he wants to share a room with. And I think that's one of the more like fun things about Boogie Nights is that you have this incredible cast. And so often they are all in the same room. Like they're just packed together like sardines. Like I'm thinking about that first sex scene uh, with Julianne Moore and Mark Wahlberg. And like just in one room alone, you have Burt Reynolds, John C. Riley, Mark Wahlberg, Julianne Moore, William H. Macy, and then just this lineup of some of the best character actors of the 90s, all just in a garage shooting porn. There are moments in Boogie Nights where it's very much, I, you know, I quite excessive and very like self-masturbatory in a look how much power they gave me type sense but then there are other times like i think that that first porno shot and honestly like all the club scenes the scenes where mark and and uh john c Riley are like making music together where pta (laughs) it's so funny and just pta just wants to see these people hang out he wants to let these actors not have to suffer from like the regular film format of chunked up broken up acting yeah. but to really let them live in scenes because he knows in the long run as a viewer that's how we connect more with these people living in the same moment as they are mm-hmm. and i think it's like a really mature choice in a film with a lot of very immature choices <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to I wanted to ask you uh, about something and, and sort of like the general onslaught of sadness in this movie. On, on the good old site, letterbox.com, you, you, you posted four stars for Boogie Nights and all, all you wrote was, fuck Reagan. Tell me about it, Chief. <laughs> I thought you might want to hear about that. <laughs> well, Kevin, 
the 80s was a time of excess, or so it was pitched. But I think that a lot of the economic choices that Ronald Reagan made for this nation led to the kind of devastation experienced by our characters who are getting rejected from is a very like buttoned up conservative like all this money is for the rich people uh sorry guys <laughs> you know the trickle down uh had not started trickling down nor did it ever but uh, <laughs> so you think about i think about like the don Cheadle scene where he's at the bank and he can't get a loan because he has done pornography in his life i think about you know marky mark who's like I think it was really the beginning of, like, being told that we could do anything, you know? I think that Americans have always been kind of encur- been encouraged to that, but I think just in general, like, the vibe of the 80s was starting to get into more, like, oh, well, if you're famous, you can just, like, keep being famous, you know? I don't know. But I just, I, I thought it was so, like, in the scene where she's in the court room or whatever with her ex-husband trying to get her child back there's a big portrait of ronald reagan on the wall and you're like that doesn't seem to line up with the film that i have been watching and then when it starts to like take a downwards turn you're like oh i get it you know now we're in reagan's america it's a really silent commentary to the point where like it's not until that scene that i realize that that's what it might be going for because i i think it's interesting how we read it because I feel like Boogie Nights is really interesting in how apolitical it feels to me. Every conflict that a character enters in Boogie Nights is either caused by or exacerbated by another person they directly know. I never really okay. felt like there were like the uh, oppressive uh, systems of Reagan's America battering down on people. It was mostly like everyone's sort of downfall here is at the behest of like emotional breakdowns kind of and emotional breakdowns that don't feel kind of like money based because I like what always surprises me is that like Dirk Diggler does get paid very handsomely you know like yeah Jack Horner is not exactly like this isn't a movie about a young like young porn starlets who get ripped off of the money that they should earn no they get their money like this is a beautiful yeah. a business that they have going they shoot a lot of porn and everyone gets paid kind of what they you know deserve and earn um and so it really leaves a lot more room for everyone to kind of like make each other cry and die and also celebrate themselves through each other uh, which is like when I see that Reagan portrait in the courtroom scene, I'm just kind of like, oh, I, I don't know if we need this. You know, I don't know. I, I feel like the whole like part of the fun of Boogie Nights is how insular it all is. Like the beginning scene where we go through the nightclub, like that's not the Sunset Strip. You know, that's that's yeah. the San Fernando Valley. Like Jack Horner's house is not some like Hollywood Hills mansion. It's a fucking place in West Covina that has a swimming yeah. pool. You know, these are people that are living out their own little pocket of the Hollywood dream, uh, but completely separate, like literally on the other side of the mountain. <laughs> but I, I disagree because I think it's really important in that like final, like the fi- like the lowest point of the film yeah. in that, there's three occurrences that happen at the same time. You're watching Mark Wahlberg get beat up in a hate crime. Lol. Famous hate crimer, Mark Wahlberg. He gets beat up in a hate in a homophobic hate crime. You see uh, Roller Girl and uh, Jack are both dealing with this like very preppy like frat boy in the back of the limo. 
and Don Cheadle is in a shootout between a guy who's like clearly very, very uh, poor, who's looking for money and like a very conservative man who has a gun. And so all three of those have such, I feel like that is, it's like truly one of the few times in the film, like you said, I agree, like it's a very insular film, but that sequence is like the rest of the world entering their bubble and just totally destroying it. And it, those those three characters are so clearly driven by such conservative values that that's why they're remind. I mean, that's what leads Mark Wahlberg to like, you know, he he like he's at his lowest point, which leads him to the robbery, which leads him back to Jack. Like all these things come together, and they 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 remind every person like we got to stick to what we're good at, and we got to stick with our people because if we don't, this stuff happens, you know. Yeah, which is also to say, like, how else did all this cocaine get into America? You know, like... <laughs> exactly, yeah. And then, like, you know, your big showdown is, like, I don't know. It's just, like, such a peak 80s moment of this guy in this... It's just, like, new money was the 1980s, is new money. And that's what that guy... That's what Alfred Molina is. And so I, I just see... I see it so clearly, and I, I appreciate it. Because I think that... The 70s and the 80s were maybe the most drastic, like the mo- one of the most drastic shifts between decades. I think you have like 50s to 60s drastic and then 70s to 80s. It's just like, holy shit. It's so different. Well, let's take this moment. Let's bring on a friend of the podcast, Hillary Jane Smith. Uh, she writes for Mary Garon Magazine, a great pal to all. Uh, let's talk more about Alfred Molina. Let's talk more about the 80s. Let's talk more about her favorite movie, Boogie Mama. Nights. Oh, baby. Uh, yo, hey, what's up, folks? Uh, we're here joined by Hillary. Hey, what's up, dude? Hey, guys. Really stoked to be here with the dynamic duo. Almost as great as... Oh, stop. Oh, stop. I mean, you guys are basically like, you know, the next generation uh, Chess Rockwell, Brock, Brock Landers, if we're... Uh... Wow. Okay. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Hillary, you're right for Merry Go Magazine. You're one of my favorite contributors. You've been writing for us starting this year. Your shit is so, so good. You had a piece about Ms. Congeniality uh, just a few so weeks ago uh, for its 20th anniversary. It's that type of shit why we love having you around at Merry Go Round, dude. It's just buenissimo. We're so excited to have you here to talk about your favorite movie? Is Boogie Nights your favorite movie? Boogie Nights is my favorite movie of all time. Um, wow. Yes, it is. Um, I've probably seen it the most of any film ever. I used to fall asleep to it in college. I had it downloaded on my laptop and I would put it on if I couldn't fall asleep. So that beginning oh scene gosh. of Hot Tracks where they're kind of showing everybody and introducing you. I've probably either listened to it or seen it without my glasses on, like, (laughs) at least, like, a hundred or more times in my life. My birthday party senior of college was Boogie Nights themed. It's... It's kind of a problem. At least at Holy this shit. point, I've uh, I've matured a little bit, but I would not say that it is not my number one favorite movie of all time. <laughs> You've got the stats. <laughs> I I kind of wish that I you know had a had my you know tentacles into another decade as much as I do the nineteen seventies, but really I just I, I'm I'm obsessed with it. I mean, it really is something that like 
all of my favorite movies, like I will excuse a movie for its flaws if it's set in the 1970s. Like I'm probably sure, I'm pretty sure I saw American Hustle in theaters like three or four times. And, you know, I don't <laughs> think people think that's like the best movie in the world. But for whatever reason, when it came out, I was in. I was like, wow. show me that movie. Give me that soundtrack. I am in. But look, I, like, I don't blame you. Like the 70s as a whole, like you it's it's the type of like aesthetic and mood that you just want to put on as like wallpaper you know like there it's a very particular kind of like you just want to like run a spoon through it you know like there's something about the way film was processed during that decade combined with the rise of new hollywood where every like not only was the processing making the shit look gorgeous but every single like hot-headed male director was also very horny about how this process <laughs> made their films look. And so everything was just sumptuous to the max. Oh, yes. Yeah, it's, it's that lava lamp effect. <laughs> yeah, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Educate us about, a bit about your history, your personal history with the big boys. Sure. Um, I thought about this and, you know, I... I didn't realize I think I was much of a film bro as I, I would have pictured. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, hmm. Um, because I, I guess like I, I was a film studies major, so I kind of came out of this pretty academic. I mean, growing up, my my dad was more of like a like a Coen brothers, like like he was like, watch these movies, they're really good. And it's like, you know, Fargo and the you know, like Barton Fink. So I didn't really think of like the whole bro-y kind of thing until I think I I started exploring more of like, oh, like, I really like, you know, David Fincher, or I really like certain directors. So I'd say I'm pretty well versed in it. Um, my biggest claim to fame would probably be um, is that I've seen every single James Bond film and know about so and, I, wow. and I know <laughs> all the Bond girls and, and all of that. Um, and, and I, oh, I, I'm sorry. I mean, I apologetically, but I do love, this is when I knew I was a true film bro is when I, I realized that one of my favorite directors, besides Paul Thomas Anderson and David Fincher, who are my two absolute favorites, but I would say my third favorite is Brian De Palma. <laughs> yo you are like just wow. human film twitter <laughs> holy fuck it was so brutal it was like one of those moments where you're like you have to look in the mirror and recognize it because i just was like self-reflection yeah it was pretty br i was like i realized it when i had seen i watched dress to kill like three times and i was like i don't think most people like that movie or like like to watch it <laughs> i'm kind of obsessed with your commitment to re-watching a film like in the last like 10 minutes you've mentioned like five movies you saw three times at least oh absolutely i'm i'm a big fan of the rewatch like i <laughs> i rewatched uh like i wrote about another round for mary ground's like top 20 films of the oh, year yeah, i wanted to watch that i'm i'm already campaigning like to have my parents i'm like you guys have to watch this movie like, we, all have to, <laughs> we have to watch it again like i'll rent it again like there's that podcast that the ringer does the rewatchables and it's like it's it's that very particular type of like often most times bro movies but like like you said like how boogie nights you just put it on on your laptop at night to go to sleep to and like you're essentially like reaching a point where you're roller skating in your dreams like these are movies that feel so 
and I'm saying this in as positive a way as I can say it, they feel so full of themselves. You know, like they are full on excuses to get lost in the medium of filmmaking. And they're often made by fucking like douchebag directors who want to do like they want to get lost in themselves and to consider that a favor unto others. Honestly, 90% of the time, it kind of pays off because for some reason, for a movie filled with so much bloodshed, tragedy, trauma, uh, like this horribly disturbing onset of sexual violence at the behest of, of pornographic videos. Boogie Nights is like, I, I feel it. I also put this on at night to fall asleep to. I also like to chill with this movie. I'm tight <laughs> with this movie. We're homies. We're bros. It's very odd how violence can sort of like reach a point and like intense drama reaches this point, you know? The, the, what's happening? Are we just de desensitized? Why, why, why are you rewatching Boogie Nights a hundred times, Hill? Well, to be honest, I definitely fall asleep when the first like roller girl, uh, Eddie Adams scene starts where she's like, let me put on my song. And I'm nor that's normally when I pass out. But <laughs> so I miss the, you know, so I normally miss the like little Bill killing himself moment. Um, right. But, but, it's like, but it's like when you like study for Spanish class, like in college, like, oh, no, play the recording and you'll learn it for the <laughs> test next morning. Like yeah. at some point at like 3 a.m. in your R.E.M., little Bill, that scene it's in it's, it's in some part of your brain. It, it is. I mean, to be honest, like, I'm sure I, I have woken up and been like, oh, I got to close my laptop. Um, but no, it's true. I mean, especially being desensitized to it. I mean, I was funny. Um, I even the, I think the, the sexual component of the film, too, because some people, you know, I mean, for me, I definitely am not somebody who appreciates as much violence in a film. I mean, I, I like I'm not really uh drawn to movies that have like a like a violent component as part of like the central plot but um but I think it's something that um you know we just it's it's easy to get desensitized especially in a movie like this where it's just so slick and I think also there's a lot of humanity in it I think that's part of the reason I found I liked it so much is that there's just this like um no matter how stark the um the drama, you know, how serious some of these topics are, especially when um, Amber is trying to get her child back in custody mm -hmm. or trying to get visitation or there's that horrific uh, homicide in the donut shop. I mean, it, it for whatever reason, like it just comes with this uplifting uh, Beach Boy song following and people coming together. So I do think that there is something to be said about like having this darkness buoyed by such a such an earnestness such a humanist element and I think that as long as a film has that like as a compliment to the dark themes and to the violence or to these really serious themes I think it can can forgive a lot or at least it becomes a lot more palatable and understanding you you almost appreciate those the severity of it because you're like well you know that's life like really terrible things can happen but if you do have that notion of like you know relationships and humanity and coming together you know it can it can kind of wash away all the the um the the horrible parts yeah i think it's a real testament to pta style in this movie i i was i was reading a few interviews with him uh at the time that boogie nights was doing its press rounds uh and he talks about the script in a really 
like surprisingly mature way for like a, a 26 year old screenwriter <laughs> trying to pack in as much of his own knowledge of movies as he wants into a script. Um, and I think it's very true of why this movie works. He, he said of it like uh, of the dialogue in the movie, you know, it's, it's chat talk. It's all code. You don't have to use a lot of nouns because all these people know each other so well that you can drop a lot of the complete sentences. Like in his mind, if your script has too many dialogue sequences where people are speaking in complete sentences, you're fucked. You've written bad dialogue. And that's kind of the mood of this movie and how it functions and how the wavelength kind of traverses throughout its its, its drama. Because it's very much like if I were to tell you guys a story right now, like it's probably going to be kind of long and winding. I'm really going to want to accentuate some points. And then at some point I might drop the fact that my grandmother died in the middle of the story. You're right. Like Hillary, it, the humanness of this movie is in that mess. It's in following up like incredible uh, uh, violence with suddenly one of the funniest things you've ever seen. Like this is a movie <laughs> that has William H. Macy shooting himself in the face uh, but also has the funniest cutaway to an actor I've ever seen in my life <laughs> with Don Cheadle sitting alone at the party with his new dreads. Like, it is the funniest shit. Like, it is one of the best so jokes good. of the 90s. One of, like, the best sight gag you can ever get. And they're in the same movie. It's it's incredible. Yeah, and I think what's really amazing about the film, too, like, with all these, like, little cutaways and then the dialogue that's not really like it's it's just so natural um it's just like there's so many jokes and funny things that happen that I don't think if you saw it like you'd have to really hone in on it like you know even when um I think it's like a montage of them like being successful or they're at the club and stuff and um Buck uh Don Cheadle is or sorry um Reed Rothschild uh is performing a magic trick and he like does it and he's and and he says to Buck and and Buck's like wow does it bother you that you're dealing with those evil forces and he's like (laughs) evil forces like no it's it's an illusion and he's like yeah it's confusing and you're just like oh my gosh it really rewards you with these these lines that like are purely flavor. You do not have to, like, this is not driving any plot whatsoever. But if you are choosing to go along with the movie, it's just a complete uh, treasure trove of gems. It just all depends on how much of yourself you're going to give in to PTA. Which, you know, depending on, like, the time this comes out, he's, like, a little smug son of a bitch. So it's kind of a hard sell, I I feel like, in the decade. I think this is such like a free-flowing sort of like naturalist film, like really uh, Altman indebted. Uh, And then we get to the, you know, these like oddly, what I find oddly to be what a lot of people consider to be the scene, which is like Alfred Molina, Sister Christian, uh, uh, Jesse's girl. And it feels like that's when the movie kind of like all slows down to a moment to be like, okay, we're going to have a scene. Whenever people talk about Boogie Nights on Twitter, I feel like this is the sequence that people bring up. Uh, and so, this Aya, this was your first time seeing this, uh, one of the most YouTube scenes uh, in the world. Uh, what did you think about the scene itself, its placement in the film, et cetera, et cetera? I 
really enjoyed it. I Kevin was like, so for some reason, this is like the scene. And I was watching it and I was like, of course this is the scene. Are you kidding me? I like, I feel most movie moviegoers, I'm very swayed by a great soundtrack over an action sequence, especially something that's kind of dissonant, like Jesse's Girl over, you know, a shootout. Oh, give me that, you know? And that first song, oh. It's oh, it it just gets me hyped because I'm like, <laughs> I know this song and it's over this cool scene. Like it got me good. I thought it was fascinating. I thought it was super fun, and it felt like very unexpected for the film, which I guess means, I I don't know. Like I was kind of taken aback by it, but I like that it's he has gone so far off the path that he was on that suddenly he's doing these things where you're like, wait, what are you doing here? But it works because the fact that he goes immediately back to Jack, you're like, yes, that makes sense. Like I would too. I thought it was lovely. I thought it was great. Alfred Molina gives such a a performance. I love that scene too, man. Alfred Molina, like I, I like him in an open bathrobe running around like and being scary at the same time. I think that is like a testament to how wonderful of an actor he is, is that he just you really are like terrified. I mean, I watching that and like you I I had this moment where I was like, is this where it ends? Like, is this what happens to them? They're just like poof gone in this. But I mean, it is it is a pretty um, insane uh scene and the fact that they end up you know even their escape from it is just so haphazard and so like in disarray I mean when they finally do return um or when Dirk I guess returns Jack and kind of has that homecoming moment you do just like it's a true abyss where you're like oh my gosh like this is I mean they're yeah they're pretty close they're hanging on by a thread there yeah I guess where I I came from and I guess I still kind of come to with this scene is that this is the moment in Boogie Nights that most feels like it was made by a 26-year-old. Like, <laughs> it is so clearly like, okay, we have, like, a villain who's hamming it up. There's going to be a lot of blood and a violent shootout. Like, in my film school thesis, I wanted to do this scene, you know, when I was 22. Paul Thomas Anderson does something very similar to Scorsese all throughout Boogie Nights. I think, you know, Boogie Nights is very obviously like a a huge Scorsese riff. Uh, It's, you know, jukebox sort of musical drama, crime, a lot, a lot of. Um, But I think what sets Paul Thomas Anderson apart is that, you know, every other scene, it's like that moment in Goodfellas when, uh, when Tommy is shot in the back of the head and Robert De Niro hears about this over the phone. And his only reaction is that he takes the phone and bashes it against the entire machine and throws over the the entire phone booth. And it's just this one moment, this explosive moment of pure masculine, not only aggression, not only rage, but a genuine sadness that we have not seen up until that point in this essentially life of nonstop violence. Boogie Nights has that moment every other scene. And it's like insane to me. There are so many scenes here that completely got me. And like not just in a, oh, that was dark way, but like Philip Seymour Hoffman 
telling himself he's so fucking stupid in the car after his advances on Mark Wahlberg are are turned down. Uh, And, you know, Mark Wahlberg in that argument with his mother where he's so furiously trying to make the point that he's not a waste of life. That, you know, this is not how he wants, he should be treated by a motherly figure. Uh, And, you know, know, the other bits of violence that we've brought up, it, it just feels so much more sophisticated than I think like the Tony Scottness of the Alfred Molina scene. You know what I mean? Like it feels like true romance and I can't blame him. Like it is an incredibly tense set piece. Like there's that one moment where Mark Wahlberg is just staring into middle distance uh, that we've brought up Aya. And I think what, what really clicks with me on this viewing and after talking with you about it a bit is that like Jesse's girl is a dissonant song choice, but on this viewing, it also clicked with me like, wow, I would hate to be killed to Jesse's girl. To Jesse's girl. I, I would hate if the last thing I ever I heard would was Jesse's girl. It would be an honor to die to Jesse's girl by Rick Springfield. Are you kidding me? I agree. Oh my gosh. Come on, Kevin. What would be your song then? What would be your choice? Well, you know, when, when, to, <laughs> when you think about like your, you know, death and like, oh, this is the end of my life. You think like Beethoven. You <laughs> think Bach. And all through the like, film, I people's lives. I to 22 by Taylor Swift. <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel like the sense, like the incoming death is like this tidal wave of like Tristan and Isolde. And then... All you really get is like people's lives being ruined to like background disco. Like it's 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 almost demeaning. A one hit wonder. <laughs> uh, Hillary, I and I were were talking about um, this movie switch over to the eighties and how the first half of the film is essentially the happy go lucky seventies. Yeah, people are ODing. There's some bad coke, but we'll scoot that aside. Everyone's making money. Everyone's fucking. Everyone's having a nice time. 80s come in, Reagan comes in, oh, buddy, not a good time. I guess this is a point where I want to bring up, is Boogie Nights about anything? Oh, yes. What isn't it about? No. Um, <laughs> oh, I think in terms of it, I do love the, I do love the transition to the 1980s. And actually, it's funny. I think that's why I love kind of this era of, um film and and stories that take place in this time the late 70s early 80s because it it does i mean like the whole really dramatic changeover it's almost like this notion of consequences right because in the 70s it's like even with pornography or or anything that's uh like free like free love and you know freedom and Jimmy Carter being a chill president and like, you know, <laughs> the like, chillest. Yeah, so chill. Like, um, you there's consequences. There's a recession. There's um in the, you know, there, there's a yeah, there's a terrible recession. There's this whole wing of people who are like, don't do all of this liberal stuff. It really bothers us. And then you have this whole rise on the right. And it, it totally puts the kibosh on it. So you do have this like idea of consequences that are um, I think a, a, a huge piece of what the film ends up with. I think what is very interesting is that I think part of the reason I love this movie so much is it, it does capture um, the idea of like, I love watching a character that has to live through different times and like how they change or if they don't change and, but the times around them are. 
And I do find that interesting in the end. You don't really see the main characters really change that much. They're, it's still that kind of happy, you know, Buck gets his stereo store, I guess, and Amber starts directing. But, like, ultimately, they're still actors. They're still making adult films. They're still, you know, having a nice time in the Valley and Sherman Oaks or Van Nuys or wherever they are. I mean, like, they're <laughs> – but I, I do think that the consequences um, – and and that notion of like a swing back to the right is definitely alive and well, especially after um, once once you see some of these characters deal with stuff. Even I find it funny the Easter egg thing I love is when uh, Amber is uh, with the judge and her ex husband, and on the wall oh, you yeah, see yeah. Ronald Reagan's portrait on the wall, but you also see former Governor Jerry Brown, who was actually Whoa. our yeah. And it's funny because it you know he that was his first time being our governor and yeah then, you know he's governor again so it, it's kind of funny when you see things like that but it's a clear that's a clear reminder of this is not the freewheeling 70s anymore this is this is a new era i find it kind of apolitical in the sense that i think every single scenario here is not exactly speaking to uh the general political climate of the 80s which a lot of these types of movies usually do like a lot of them are often like uh, you know, the Goodfellas even are kind of like larger political statements about uh, why men bring down society. <laughs> Boogie Nights is a film that I'm not sure what it's trying to say because a lot of it definitely feels like the more violent the culture gets, a lot of it is root caused in the fact that these people are pornographers. Like, it, it you know, you get to um, like the roller girl scene uh, where they're basically inventing bang bus. Uh, and they're rolling around in a limousine and just picking up random studs for her to have sex with. And that's basically the modern model of pornography. It is, let's see what this random dude can do to this slut. Like, it is a, very much a wave of sexual violence that has taken over uh, this entire, you know, what was seen as an art form in, in the 70s uh, by at least a bigger majority than it is today, where today it's, it's it's smut that you get on Reddit, you know. It's 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 largely seen as gross, debased. Don't do it, and largely because it it lacks the artistry that Jack wants. <laughs> There's no story. There's no meaning here, kid. It isn't cinema, uh, and it it's a weird thing because you know Jack Horner is sort of like lamenting the loss uh, of of his own art form, but it. In a larger sense, he's kind of ruining the world around him, as I think, I don't agree with that, but it really does feel like that's what Boogie Nights is putting out. Well, I think that, I mean, there's something to be said about, not. I wouldn't even, I guess this isn't necessarily a political statement, but um, you, you kind of hit on a little bit about the commodification of it, right? Because it does get to the point where there is videotape introduced and... It's just, you know, all right, what can we churn out to sell tapes, sell things to make sure that we can stay in business? Um, and I think what I, something I do love about the film and how it depicts the adult industry, which I find the adult industry fascinating. I've watched so many documentaries on it and like <laughs> read books and I find it fascinating because it really is, um, you know, a, almost like a, um, a, the most authentic um and truthful telling of how movies are, um, you know, produced for a specific need and like an audience. It's how to sell things, which unfortunately the film industry, I don't think the mainstream film industry comes by that honestly, 
but the adult film industry does and in that it's like this is what you're here for when you're watching this type of film um and i do like that the, the i think the way boogie nights approaches it is that it doesn't really take a stance on is this good or is this bad it just is very honest about the types of people that participate in this industry um the earnestness that's associated. Um, I think there's even a story, who knows if it's true, but Burt Reynolds had said that he like visited an adult film set to do some research. And the number one question he got asked was, how do I get a SAG card from all the actors? So, oh. <laughs> you know, it's just people who are trying to make a living. And, um, you know, I, I think that having Paul Thomas Anderson having adult film actors, like notable actors, like Nina Hartley, who plays Little Bill's wife, she's a real life adult film actress, like, and the judge who was in that scene with Amber, like, that's an adult film actress, I can't remember her name, but, um, Interesting. but, there's, but she's who's, um, that, that's the, the porn actress that Julianne Moore's character is based on. Yeah, yeah oh, there, interesting. yeah, there's a lot of, so I do think that there's at least an honesty, and I think an understanding, I think, honestly, it is probably one of the most empathetic tellings of the adult film industry, but, that's to not to say that there's obviously different levels of exploitation and desperation and violence and really terrible things that happen. And the film, I think, does a pretty good job at least touching on that. But, you know, it's again, it's a Hollywood film. It's it's doing what it should, which is to try and tell a compelling story that it can reach the most um, audience it can. It's, it's just such an interesting arc because it. Dirk uh, and and Reed make such a a cognizant point of talking to Jack and and telling him like the new porn style of like slapping around the, the actress it's it's not sexy like it that's not making love that's not a scene uh, and then of course it only takes a few years until they're doing their own movies where they're just slapping people around like fucking crazy and giving right into what the 80s uh, call for mm-hmm. so yeah you know what i guess i'm talking you're right there is like a a rise of sexual violence in that medium by proxy of not only it's not really their fault. It's mostly they're coming into a greater culture that is valuing that more. That yeah. is what is selling. That is the honest product that people want. It's not porn's fault. It's a lot more of, of your mom and pop at the dinner table's fault. It's Ronald Reagan's fault. <laughs> Specifically. All of our ills of a society, we gotta, he, it's, it's horrible. Everything. Oh, I agree. I'm like, I agree, actually. <laughs> Wait, hold on. I, I see Margaret Thatcher slowly walking away, thinking she got off scot-free. Come back here. <laughs> you get back you come here, Come back Thatcher. here, you stupid fuck. You get back over here. Uh, I want to I wanna rip the Band-Aid off. Um, there's no real uh, sensitive way to get across this topic. Okay. Real painful one. Paul Thomas Anderson was 26 years old when he made Boogie Nights. Grim. How does how does everyone? Twenty six is still the future for me. So, oh well, you know, <laughs> I mean, not for I, I, me. I think, <laughs> not for, not for I think me we're either. all coming. Not for me either. <laughs> we're all coming from very different perspectives on Paul Thomas Anderson being twenty six when he made Boogie Nights. <laughs> how how does everyone feel? How does everyone feel? I'm just kind of my big, I'm just like, how? Like, how? He made one film before this, and suddenly they're like, Burt Reynolds. <laughs> Epic about the porn industry in Los Angeles. Go ahead. It is a weird amount of power he gets for this, because he wanted to make it 
three hours and NC-17. <laughs> and the producer went up to him and went, here's your thing, Paul. You can have one of those. <laughs> Paul Thomas Anderson chose three hours and then still brought it in 25 minutes under. So honestly, everyone kind of won a little bit. I've tr- been trying to read into it. I'm not exactly sure what the fuck happened here. I think a big part of it has to do with the first film kind of being an independent, not financial hit, but it definitely picked up some steam. Paul Thomas Anderson was one of those guys who was really doing a lot of stuff in the Sundance Institute labs. His first film was at Cannes. Oh, this little bitch. Yeah. Part eight was Cannes. Hard Eight, written and directed by Paul Thomas Anderson, uh, was at uh, Un Certain Regard section at Cannes in 1996. Oh, that's right. That's bizarre. Honestly, though, I love me some Hard Eight. I've watched that multiple times, too. (laughs) Terrific. Severely (laughs) underrated. The moment it gets a criterion, it will have its moment again. And not that he needs another one, but it'll be another like masterpiece feather in his cap. I can't believe he was 26, though. I mean, I did hear that him and Burt Reynolds got into a lot of fights. Also, this would have been too much for me. I don't think I could have. I mean, I would just would have been too blown away because I'm a super fan. But I apparently Warren Beatty was up for that part. And I would have just yeah. like probably fainted if I had seen that. But wow. Um, that that was kind of crazy to me that to think that that was a possibility. Um, well, well Leo been. DiCaprio was supposed to be Dirk Diggler, and he was going to do it, but he took Titanic instead because that bag looked a lot more full. Uh, and he referred Mark Wahlberg, and then Mark Wahlberg looks at the script. He shows up to a meeting with PTA and says, "Yeah, I only read the first thirty-five pages." Uh, and PTA was like, "Oh, okay, fuck this guy." But then Mark Wahlberg went on to explain, like. He had already done, like, Calvin Klein ads. Like, he was, like, the underwear model, (laughs) up-and-coming actor, rapper, little bitch. Uh, And what Mark Wahlberg really wanted to ask PTA was, like, look, I just want to get on your same wavelength. Do you want to use me because you know I will get in my underwear, or do you see me as an actor? And PTA just looked at him and went, I loved you in the Basketball Diaries. (laughs) (laughs) Wahlberg just clicked with this movie and you can see it i think it's oh, an incredible absolutely. performance oh incredible performance honestly i'm not a mark Wahlberg fan per se i i would not say that um love Us him and love him in this movie though oh man oh, so authentic like a, so great it's a career peak that he is like not at all grateful for i feel like <laughs> he's he's definitely taken this new walk of like oh i'm a family man and i honor my faith and i will only be in transformers it's like, okay, buddy. And he could have stopped 9-11. He could have stopped 9-11 and he didn't. How dare he? Oh, come on, Mark. <laughs> Mark's funny. I, 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 I don't like to say that I think Mark is funny, but he's funny. Like him and um, the other guys is so... Is that what oh. Yeah, 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 yeah. he's so funny. He's so good in that. And I remember I remember a lot of people watched that. That was like the real like second coming of no pun intended of Mark Wahlberg was <laughs> the the other guys because everyone was I remember everyone our age. We were so used to him as just like Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch. And then this happened and everyone was like, oh, he's really funny. And he's very good. Plays off Will Ferrell very well. I was surprised. He's like one of my favorite comedic actors. It's really bizarre. What? Right? Well, because he's oh he's, he's in all... Ted, huh? I forgot about Ted. Oh, well, I he's forgot about Ted. Ted too. He's really well. solid in that. But I'm thinking of The Departed. I forgot he's, he's in The Departed. He's like he's wait, in The it... Departed. 
Best Supporting Actor? Is that right? Or like nomination? I think so. He was definitely nominated. Uh, He is so fucking funny in that film. Like Scorsese movies, that's always like the, the, the thing that no one talks about with them, but you always feel it when you're watching. They're hilarious. Like he's making like dramas first, but then definitely comedy second. He's the titular fighter. I forgot. <laughs> He's the fighter. He's which is the also fighter. A very funny oh movie. So good in the fighter. He's really good in that movie. Uh, I I agree. It's so funny. I'm like, I don't really like him that much. And you guys are naming all these performances. I'm like, oh yeah. He he did it's it. It's a bummer. When you get him in that right mix of uh, this Boogie Nights mix of mixing the drama and the comedy, uh, it, it it's always a fun time to watch. But I think Boogie Nights nails it best because I think the really interesting one to one between Dirk Diggler and Paul Thomas Anderson is that like Dirk is a very stubborn character throughout the whole film. I think it's a great point you raise, Hillary, where we get to the ending of the movie and if you had told me that we had not left 1977, I'd believe you. You know, like the film stock has not changed. The colors have not changed. Everything is the exact same as it started, even though it's very uh, emotionally, intellectually, tangibly not. Dirk Diggler is the same stubborn dude throughout, but you always get to see how he's self-medicating with vanity. You know what I mean? Like, we, he never really does a 180 on his character, but we get to learn about where he is in his headspace based on how he's making himself feel big, look big, be big. Uh, and I think like Wahlberg really nails that so beautifully uh, in a way that like it's hard not to see PTA doing the same thing with every flourish in this movie. Like it is, it, it's, it's, PTA coming in thinking he has a giant dick and waving it around in every single scene. And there are moments of profound sadness that come through. Like, you know, the the moments that we've brought up, you know, Philip Seymour Hoffman, the mom, and they feel so, they, they, they sting so hard, not because he's seen a lot of movies, not because he's like studied screenwriting, not because he's gone to the Sundance Institute, but because there's, there's something that Paul Thomas Anderson as a person is not telling people and is really just showing off as like this coke snorting Fiona Apple dating wonder child. But you get these moments in Boogie Nights where it's like, okay, this man has clearly experienced some very deep pain. And it is in these little pockets that we get to really see who he is. And it's like the exact same dynamic with Dirk. And I think that's that's sort of the magic spark of Boogie Nights throughout is like when we really get to see Paul Thomas Anderson. And I think that's kind of like why I enjoy the later half of his career more is it's just it's always just him wearing his heart on his sleeve. It's him actually embodying the Jonathan Demi ethos where it's just instead of copying shots or copying attitudes from the guy he loves, he just goes full hog and goes, you know what? Jonathan Demi works because he is an incredibly earnest man. Because mm-hmm. all these films mm-hmm. are so rich with emotion. The close-ups are, are there not to give your actors a money shot, but to give the characters a money shot. Uh, and, you know, that's what he really succeeds in later on that are, are here in moments. Um, but I don't know. I, I, I see, like, a really sad man throughout this movie. <laughs> I think I, I was reading a lot of interviews and, like, listening to commentaries to prepare for this episode. And one really interesting thing that pops up whenever Paul Thomas Anderson talks about this movie and just working in general when he's in it in the 90s. 
uh, is that he keeps bringing up the fact that he likes to work with his friends. And he wants, like, Boogie Nights is a movie with like 80 plus speaking roles because he just wants to give as much work to his friends as possible. And beautiful, lovely. That's how you want to make movies. But then you listen to more interviews and you realize that like, oh yeah, I had Julianne Moore, Moore on board because I really admired her work. I had Mark Wahlberg on board because I really admired his work. I had Burt Reynolds on board because you start to realize that his principal cast, none of them are his friends. They're all these parasocial relationships he formed from watching movies that they were in. He feels like a lonely dude mm -hmm. that started making these movies just to meet more people so they could also think he was cool. Because that's what he's doing for us as an audience. And it, I just found it so bizarre that it's also him in the moment working with people because for all this talk of him loving to work with his friends, like I, I don't, I don't see Paul Thomas Anderson working with Mark Wahlberg anymore. I don't see him working with Julianne Moore anymore. I don't see him working with Heather Graham anymore, who I think puts in the best fucking performance of the whole movie. Like all of like people that he claims were friends, like he kind of uses new people every single time. It, like he's, he's kind of like alienated himself through the years. And in that, I think he's become a more interesting director, but I don't know. It, that that's kind of where I come from with Paul Thomas Anderson as a twenty six year old director. The narrative is usually he's this hot shot bro dude. Look at this little shit. But at a remove, I'm and just seeing like the darker moments of Boogie Nights, I just see like a very sad director who needs to get off his addiction. He, I'm on his I'm on his Wikipedia page. And first, my first my first question is, Kevin, I love that you've deep dived onto his psyche, but I'm like, are you sure he doesn't just mean like his friends behind the camera or like just like well, small he, parts? <laughs> it could be, but like Yeah, what about um, Philip Baker Hall and uh Philip Baker face? Hall? The guy with the beard John... from There Will Be Blood, I can't remember what his name is. Ricky something or even the... John C. Riley he worked with again. Yeah. Yeah, John C. Riley. Yeah, but like up Magnolia. until like two that like but that's the thing. Like that's I, I think that's still first phase. You know? Yeah. Like you get into the second phase and it's all like it's 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 Daniel Day Lewis and Vicky Creeps and no one else. He's you know? <laughs> like it is such an interesting switch up of where he was in that first phase of just wanting to get surround himself with as many people that love him and that he loves back as possible into creeping into a shell like when you guys think of a paul thomas anderson movie do you think about the movie first or the personality first his personality yes movie because I, I i also think about movie for the record i feel he's like such a mystery to me i mean i'm not super well versed but i mean first of all on his wikipedia page he's had a very troubled childhood he is one of nine children he's Holy the third shit. youngest Wait, do you think that's why him and maya rudolph have like five children they have like quite a few kids right yeah they have like a brood yeah they have like a and basketball he, team for sure he, <laughs> he like wasn't <laughs> he he says that he had a troubled relationship with his mom but was tight with his dad and he went to a lot of high schools like he just like went from school to school he went to campbell hall lol he's from the valley yeah oh yeah so i'm i'm kind of like yeah i get that he was like lonely because the young like one of the youngest of nine children like he's clearly trying to like he's clearly been like passed over a lot but no i i think he's a mystery and i think that's what i find compelling about him like one time i heard a story about how uh he refuses to watch a movie unless it's on 70 millimeter refuses <laughs> 
he feels lonely. And I think it's very sweet that he, because I also feel like that's reflected in his relationship with Maya Rudolph. I don't want to, I don't know them. I, I am so addicted to Maya Rudolph. It's insane. But like, I feel like that's what you do. You marry like a really like outgoing, funny, bubbly, loud woman like that, because you're like, like she's the part, she's life of the party. Like, He's, you know, friggin' what's his name in uh, in Phantom Thread, just kind of like <laughs> doing. He's Reynolds. <laughs> what is it? Woodcock Reynolds. Woodcock. Reynolds Woodcock. Reynolds yeah. Woodcock. Woodcock. In in reading interviews with him, I found it to be like how he admits his own personality in Phantom Thread. It is such a marked difference from '97, where he is showing up coked up to the Oscars and just completely like throwing tantrums because he didn't win best original screenplay like it's just a completely different human being in two decades it's it, it's wild to me and you can like feel I, yeah. his growth even like i mean again i do still think he is a mystery but i feel like even in watching boogie nights and watching phantom thread even there will be blood you can feel the transition that he made from being the young hot shot or whatever to becoming an actual oh tour <laughs> i'm really excited for us uh down the line when we get to do uh, a punch drunk love episode because mm. that is the uh that is the space between this phase and there will be blood 2002 to 2007 that's the last right. film before that yeah. gap takes place wikipedia says that he was with fiona apple till 2002 but it also says that he was with maya rudolph from 2001 messy hmm. messy <laughs> Now I'm like, Hillary, rank Paul Thomas Anderson for me, but you don't have to. So, like, what's your second fave after Boogie Nights? I'd probably say The Master is probably my second favorite. Okay, I have not um, seen that one yet. That one's, like, whoa. Like, it's, uh, it's, it's very interesting because it's, like, he clearly was, like, getting really in his head, like, oh, what if I told the epic tale of what America means? Like, and it's... <laughs> that, movie, that movie is so intense that it makes There Will Be Blood look like Boogie Nights. Yeah, it does. It's, like, it's so epic. I mean, I love it. I get why... It, oh, it, I, I was kind of mad. It's my favorite. Yeah, I'm kind of mad that it, like, didn't get more praise. I'm a huge, like, I mean, Philip Seymour Hoffman is the only... Well, besides Ruth Bader Ginsburg, but he's the only celebrity that I've ever like cried over when they passed away. Um, and I, yeah, I remember just like, it was really funny when you were talking earlier, Kevin, about like, oh, he didn't work with as many people in like other films or like, you know, who are his friends. I have thought, I'm like, I wonder if Philip Seymour Hoffman had lived. I wonder if there would have been more collaborations because oh, like yeah. they were just so good together. Um, but yes, master second, I'd say probably... I mean, this is me. This is not like what I think are the best. No, yeah, like, of I think course. No, there, I'm curious. I was like, I think There Will Be Blood is probably like his best movie. Um, but I'd say probably next would be Hard Eight for me. I love that one. Um, wow. And then Inherent Vice. That's said, probably that's my yeah. That's a pass. And then I liked. <laughs> and then I like I like Magnolia, but I kind of just like it because I I honestly I didn't like like I could have you could have just edited the movie down to like Tom Cruise and Willie H. Macy and I would have watched that. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That it's it's far and away my least favorite of his. Yeah. It's, not not it, my jam. It's all right. Like it's I get it. I get why it's yeah. notable, but you know, I don't that's one that I probably will not be rewatching. 
calling Boogie Night self-absorbed is a bit of like a an overly harsh criticism, but I think it definitely applies to Magnolia. <laughs> <laughs> I think he's interesting. I think he does genuinely want to work with his friends, but I think he, because of his like reverence for filmmaking and like being the Tarantino like sibling that he is, I feel like he is kind of a star fucker. And I think that that is him constantly like it's a constant battle for him that he doesn't want to admit that and that's why it's so interesting that he was like i love to hire my friends sometimes when i can't get someone bigger <laughs> <laughs> i was I, I was just thinking that i i completely agree and i think it's also that tarantino mindset of being incredibly cognizant of what your filmography looks like yeah and how each film stands in relation to the others inherent vice could have easily starred john c Riley instead of joaquin phoenix you know like i feel like every joaquin phoenix role that pta that puts so him in much better i know but, i totally agree i'm sorry like i you know joaquin but that, phoenix but, amazing the, actor but no i did not like that i want but the thing is that john, john c Riley. Isn't just not the age. The like if, if it was John C. Riley at Magnolia age, mm. then totally. That's Doc Spartello. But he knows that he had you know, even though he is super tight with John C. Riley, like that is the one guy that he said from the get-go, like, Heart Eight stars John C. Riley. Like it is his first start, you know, next to uh, Philip Baker Hall. But it's he understands, like, as much as he kind of loves the friends that he does want to keep around, he also understands, you know. You can't exactly have like Sean Connery doing Diamonds Are Forever, you know? Like you really like having Sean Connery come back in 1983 to do another James Bond movie is fucking embarrassing, you know? And honestly, if the shoe don't fit, sorry, John, I'm gonna go with someone else that's kind of doing your thing, but now. Uh, and so I guess that's that's kind of what also might go into his decision his decision making as a as a filmmaker and a director. Maybe John C. Riley should have played Mank. Oh, that Whoa. would have been so good. <laughs> no. I think he's, no. he's definitely. <laughs> Where Ooh. are you, buddy? <laughs> I have a question, though. Okay, I mean, Kevin, you can answer this as well. But I do you think that Paul Thomas Anderson watches Bravo? Oh, are we going to do this with all of our auteurs now? Because I'm in. <laughs> I don't I don't know. I almost feel like I'm going he'd be no. more of a bachelor guy. <laughs> I kind of feel like he's burned out a bit on like watching stuff. Like I think he did so much consuming in throughout the 80s, 90s and early 2000s that at this point like if he's going to watch a movie it's because like the director's guild is doing like a Q&A with him and Barry Jenkins. And it's like, oh, "Okay, I guess I need to watch if Bill Street <laughs> <laughs> Like I, I feel like that's it. why he that's why he watches movies, which by the way, that podcast does exist and it's I'm an so, incredible oh, Q&A. I have goosebumps just thinking about it. <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, I think he's really uh, getting into, I mean, he is in a mood and has been in a mood where he just really wants to branch out and and try things that, I, I think he's really inspired by Johnny Greenwood, uh, who really became his composer, starting with There Will Be Blood, and how Johnny Greenwood has toured uh, the, the world uh, all through the 90s and the 2000s with Radiohead, basically done the rock star thing. Uh, and then goes into film composing. And I think that really sets off something with PTA. Where like in 2015, uh, he makes uh, Junoon, uh, which is this documentary that premiered on Mubi. It's like 55 <laughs> minutes. And it's like a, a completely uh, verite documentary about this like folk band in India. And it's basically stop making sense, 
but with this Indian folk band just going at it in an acoustic set. It's insane. It's incredible. That sounds amazing. <laughs> that sounds so cool. And so he he's doing that. He's hanging out with the 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 Haim sisters. He just wants to kind of work like I think he's getting back in the flow of working with his friends. Boogie Nights, you have that scene where they're shooting the porn scene and he really travels through the camera and he has this really romantic moment where you see the film threading and you see the sex at the end of the lens and it's the mechanics of sex in cinema intertwined with one another. It's everything that he's obsessed about. In like the 2010s and the 2020s, Every time you see him like in an interview or like in a photo, he's like in a nice oversized shirt. His hair is kind of like messy and down. He looks very much at peace. Like this is a guy he does. that has not only figured out like himself, but figured out exactly what he wants to make. Uh, and, you know, I think Boogie Nights for me is still kind of this, I, I think it's a really lovely, mature film, but it's definitely trying to figure out what type of movie, what type of director he wants to be. I think I think I I agree. I definitely agree that he's at peace, and I think it's I think that's why I kind of really. I mean, I love I'm, as I've said fifteen times in the last ten minutes. Threadhead, right here. <laughs> Phantom Thread's one of the best movies I've ever seen in my entire life, and I just love that when he talks about it. The reason he made Phantom Thread is because like of the way Maya Rudolph looked at him one time when he was sick, and you're yeah. like, oh, so he's just making movies when something comes to him. Like he's not like searching for something. He's not like let me work with this person. Let me do this thing with this person. He's just like, okay, I've got this movie. Let's go. You know? Yeah. I, I think that's the big difference is that if you were to ask uh, like 1990s PTA why he made that movie, the first thing he would say is, oh, because I love Powell and Pressburger. Oh, I love, yeah. I love Bergman. And I think that's the big switch up of, of, of how he switched, of how he changed. I also think he's probably doing, I mean, like, he's a dad. I'm sure he's doing the thing where he shows his kids all the hits. Oh, sure. So sure. he's probably oh, not watching God. new stuff. He's just like, okay, kids, here's what we got on on the deck for today. <laughs> he's like, all right, kids, let's watch Wizard of Oz, but it's Robert Redford's Technicolor print. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. One interesting thing that he brought up in an interview is the fact that, like, um, uh, he looked when when he was younger. He looked at the fact that like all of his favorite filmmakers were like you know John Ford fought in World War II and like Ernst Lubitsch ran away from the Nazis from Europe and into America and he is from the Valley, you know. And so for the longest time he hated himself for that until he realized that like you know actually wait like these uh, the bedrooms in like West Covina that have like the pink wallpaper and posters on the wall. I know that. That's my experience. He did the, it, it was it's the Nancy Myers thing. It was like, you know what? I know what I know. Right, what and I'm you going know. to do the realist experience. <laughs> depict the realist experience of what I know, and that's basically Boogie Nights. Yeah, it's true. I mean, it's funny. I will say so I'm not an LA person. I'm from the San Francisco Bay Area. I live in New York most of the time, not during quarantine or back and forth. But I, it's funny as someone who's not from LA, I think even just watching this movie and, you know, going to school and like becoming obsessed with movies and films, I think his work and this movie in particular, I think that's also part of the reason I've always loved it is because it has that like that sense of a true like it's an LA story and it does mm -hmm. talk so much about that idea of like people who are just trying to make it work in LA and like very much like 
authentic to what LA is actually like. Like the San Fernando Valley is yeah. a good portion of what it's like to live in Los Angeles. And yes. I I mean like I just love that part of it. I love when they're, you know, go like when they're going to the bank or they're going to the um the nightclub. It's just so like for someone who's maybe not from LA and kind of romanticizes it in a way, it's funny because you know, they're they're so humdrum for someone who lives there. Like Kevin, you're saying like it's something about like you know, you you write what you know and you're familiar with and and to him it's just, you know, what he grew up with. But I think a lot of people love this so much or like some part of the reason I love it so much is that to me it's still even if it's the kind of adult film weird twisted version of it it's still this notion of what the hollywood dream or what the la life looks like and i think it's like fascinating to get to kind of like delve in and be a fly on the wall to see someone who's like trying to make it aya is boogie nights now your favorite film of all time No, I'm so sorry. Uh, I I really enjoyed it. Don't get me wrong. My, to knock the social network off its pedestal, buddy. <laughs> you need a bigger <laughs> That's bat. a lot of pushing. Yeah, need a, a bigger bat. Um, I no, I thought it was really fun. I th- and I think this conversation really opened my eyes to it more. I think especially discussing the whole like '80s and Reagan stuff of it really, really made me. That whole conversation really opened my eyes to it as something more than just like. You know, here's what happened next. Here's what happened next, you know? Um, and I also really liked our conversation about PTA. I think he's fascinating. I think the more of his films that I, obviously the more of his films that I watch, the more I'm like, who is this guy? And I, why do I want to like go get Chinese food with him and talk to him for like three <laughs> hours? But also yeah, like yeah. my Rudolph is there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a really tricky film because I think it's, it is, uh, v- purely entertaining on its surface and it's very you can fall into the trap of simply thinking it's just entertaining Um, but I think there's a a really delicate commentary there in just you know it's it's not laying out its big social implications as uh, as brazenly as a lot of its peers you know this isn't like an Oliver Stone like natural born killers type of thing (laughs) where it's like talking about the impact of media on our children Boogie Nights is very much about the impact of media on a on a greater culture but it's doing so in just looking at these human to human interactions uh, how these characters love each other and why they never hate each other you know despite everything they go through thick and thin it's love throughout it's all surrogate families you know it's like I've gotten to the point where when I first watched Boogie Nights, I was like, I, it's fine. It's not the master, whatever. But I've seen it enough times now that this is the year where it clicked, where like I get that feeling where you get to the end of the movie and it, you know, you hear the Beach Boys on the soundtrack and it's like, I feel like I'm, I'm at, like, I'm very sad. Like I, I, I am at, I'm like, I'm watching the series finale of one of my favorite shows, Sad. Like it's, I'm, I'm at the last episode of Mad Men, Sad. And, it, you know, it's finally clicking in a way where it's not just like 20s coked up director proving himself. It's an actual vision into the San Fernando Valley. Like it is this region that is living and breathing and and very much fucking. <laughs> <laughs> speaking of what? <laughs> Ooh, boy, speaking of fucking... Let's oh, talk baby, about it. Take us home, Kev. <laughs> Let's talk about some tits. 
ass, dicks, butts, everything. Aya and Hillary tell us who was the hottest of the flick. Hillary, please. Uh, the floor is yours. Oh my gosh. Too many to choose. It's like yeah, lots to choose from. It's literally oh walking God. into Baskin Robbins. It's like, what? <laughs> um, okay. Well, if I really thought about it, who I just absolutely adore is, I think, objectively the hottest. Um, you know, a, fe- a fellow extremely fair, pale skinned uh, uh, blonde woman gotta give it up to heather graham she is Mm -hmm. i mean like everything in this movie she is so hot beginning and all her different styles you just feel for her she's just oozes sex but in that girl next door way even though she's just living breathing porn star like i just oh i love her i love her in this i love her forever like she's just amazing so definitely the hottest for me did you see on her tiktok that she is roller skating again? What the fuck? Oh, Heather man. Graham has a TikTok? I love it. I love it. I, yeah. I, I think it's like, she's so amazing. I wish she was in more stuff. I think I just like, yeah. I, I just, I don't know. I, I've, I've seen like, I remember I watched this movie, like this Lifetime movie she was in called Cake with like Sandra Oh. And I was like, what a duo i know it was excellent but i was like this is where this this lives i'm like this lives in like early 2000s lifetime i'm like we need we need more of her in other roles i remember even i watched that horrible menendez brothers like nbc law and order special because she played the mistress i'm like give me some heather graham i will take her (laughs) anytime i can get her and she was in the hangover right yeah yeah. she played the the Stripper yeah. with a heart of so gold. So sweet. So yeah. sweet. Thank you, Todd Phillips. <laughs> <laughs> Heather Graham is like, her performance in this movie is so incredible because she's able to, like most of her scenes are completely silent and she's doing everything she needs to do with her face. Like, look, this this might be some overpraise. Maybe, maybe. But like, I feel like Heather Graham in Boogie Nights is very much like, what she's doing with her face and how she's positioning her body is like almost like a, a piece of furniture that accentuates every single moment in this movie. It's like she's in, in, in Carl Dreyer's The Passion of Joan of Arc. You know what I mean? <laughs> like she knows exactly how to carry herself in every single second that she is on screen. It is like you look at her and it's like, oh, yeah, roller girl. Like, this is a mythic figure. This is, we are in this decade. I think this movie really works because of every scene she's just whizzing around in the background of. Kevin, you really threw it back there with, like, Joe yeah. <laughs> Like, I mean, I was going to say she definitely gives me more Michelle, like, she's definitely more of, a, like, a Michelle Pfeiffer type of actress. Yes. I think if she had actually been given or maybe, like, I don't know if she maybe tested for roles that were more in that realm, but, like, but I agree with what you're saying. She's just, like, I mean, physically... <laughs> like so good at like her like her physical acting is perfect i mean i would give her an oscar just for standing in a scene (laughs) look i'm just saying i think there is a one-to-one link between joan of arc being sentenced to death and heather graham having to deal with a guy in her high school class mimicking sucking a dick those two moments same exact skill level of acting for me same exact despair in the face killer stuff 
Great pick, wow. Hillary. Great pick. Great pick. Great pick. Aya, Aya. Lot of lot of folks in here. A lot of folks in Boogie Nights who are hot. But for me, from moment one, it goes to Miss Julianne Moore. Ooh, the way that she oh, is introduced yes. in that dress and like a couple of the dresses she wears in it, she is so radiant. It is unreal. She just is so effortless in this. I mean, clearly there's a lot. Of, like it's it's a gorgeous like effortlessness that's so clearly put upon. But it's it works so well, and she's like forbidden fruit almost because like he like like she's just there, like she's the one who is like her favor means the most to him, you know. Look, I think I was absolutely definitely gonna go with Heather Graham, but just to spice things up, I just want to, you know, I gotta go with the classic. I gotta go with a cultural mainstay, folks. Burt Reynolds is in this motion picture, yeah, and yeah. by proxy, if Burt Reynolds is in a movie, he must be the hottest of the movie. It's just math. It's mathematics, physics, Watching statistics. Him suck on those cigarettes. Oh boy! So, oh, he's just laid back. He's just, and his you watch his mind working. So hot. Yeah. Okay. So I've definitely <clears throat> seen this movie with like my whole family. Um, Jesus my- Christ. <laughs> let's yeah it was a poor decision on my part um i mean people enjoyed it but i remember my i, remember I bet my, they did <laughs> i remember my mom was like there is like when burt reynolds gets in the hot tub my mom just being like very excited like being like wow he's so hot <laughs> <laughs> i was like mom like <laughs> he's after a silver tale, fox after your tale of watching it with your whole family, I was so scarred. My friend texted me today and said, I'm putting on Boogie Nights because you watched it last night. And I was like, oh, cool. Tell me what you think. And then she goes, like 10 minutes later, she's like, you know, I'm watching it with my mom. I may come to regret this. And I said, Jessica, I'm not kidding. Turn it off right Abort. now. Watch Abort. it tonight by yourself. Turn Wa- this movie off. Watching any movie that has like lots of sex scenes in it with your family members is, it's just pass yeah even if your family is like cool or whatever it's just an awkward experience all around it ain't right. it's it ain't yeah, right. it's just unneeded no no uh there's that one moment where burt reynolds is just sucking back on a cigarillo when eddie and roller girl are fucking on the yep. couch in front of him and he does the thing he takes a puff and he's pursing his lips and when he removes the cigarillo his lips are still pursed as he's watching them Holy! This is a man. This is a man of the culture. This is a man <laughs> who knows how to give himself in full body without giving himself in full body. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it is like it is the same face you make when you're eating the best steak of your life. It's the same face you make when you listen to music after for the first time. Who, <laughs> oh baby, Burt Reynolds lip acting. A plus. A plus. Friends, folks, we just talked about Boogie Nights. Aya, you you watched Boogie Nights for the first time. Congratulations. I, I freaking boogied, baby. <laughs> Hillary, we want to thank you so, so, so much for joining thank us today. You, oh, thanks, guys. It was so fun. Where can we find you on the internet if you want us to find you? What are your plugs? I mean, I guess you could follow me on Twitter. My name is Hillary Jane Smith. That's it. And then, uh, I don't know, 
you guys, everybody should read Merry Go Round because it's an awesome publication. And I write there sometimes and it's fun. So please read me there. Read read everything there. It's excellent. <laughs> Listen to her. She's right. She's right. <laughs> uh, folks, uh, it's it's New Year's Eve. Uh, by the time this episode goes up, uh, people either listen to this on the day of or in 2021 for all our future listeners. <laughs> what I want to be you. Good luck. <laughs> I'm enjoying where I am right now. You January second motherfuckers. Oh, you guys got it tough. <laughs> A brave new world, brother. <laughs> I uh, do you want to hit him with the rigmarole that you do so oh, well? Oh, thank you so much for listening to Aya versus the Big Boys on Mary Ground Magazine Podcast Network. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Uh, please uh, follow Mary Graham Magazine at MGR Magazine on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. Follow me at Aya LHMN on Twitter and Instagram. Kevin at Kevin Cookman on Twitter and Instagram as well. Please listen to Diamond the Jukebox every Friday night. Please read all of our end of the year coverage, which is super fun. The film list just dropped. Uh, and I believe by the time this comes out, the TV list will be out. Cross your fingers. Uh, and then music is out as well. And then I know games is coming shortly thereafter. Um, I don't what else is there, baby? Stay safe. Stay home. Stop freaking leaving your house. Uh, that's my plug this week. <laughs> Stop uh, leaving your house. My plus stop leaving card, your house. Don't leave your home and the PS5, which I will be unboxing on my Twitch stream later today. Uh, everyone join uh, our, our own our discords so that we can uh, watch Jake Randall together and score a PS5. Oh, God bless him. <laughs> uh, we're becoming gamers in 2021 uh, yes. since it looks like we there's really no reason to ever go outside ever again. Happy New Year's, <laughs> you <laughs> motherfucks. <laughs>